stands a lonesome pine. Just below is the cabin home of a little girl of mine. Her name is June, and very, very soon she'll belong to me. For I know she's waiting there for me neath that lone pine tree. In the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, on the trail of the lonesome pine, in the pale moonshine, our hearts entwine, where she carved her name and I carved mine, oh June, like the mountains I'm blue, like the pine, I am lonesome for you. Welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 158. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. In the background, you may hear my dog, Bug, going crazy as uh, the life of a podcaster goes. Just as I was about to hit record, something happened in the background to distract the production. In this case, my dog all of a sudden decided to go nuts. Also, I have developed a sneezing fit. So, with creative editing, you won't notice that. Uh, or maybe you will. Maybe my bodily functions will just be a little bonus for you uh, for you guys this week. You don't even have to support the Patreon to get access to it. How cool is that? So what's been happening, everybody? I am flipping sick of snow. Breaking news this week. As I record this, it's not even the end of January yet. And we have gotten a metric crapload of snow where I live. I don't know the exact inches. And I know there are parts of the world that have gotten a lot more. So I should shut up and quit whining. But, fact remains, I still got to deal with it. Got to shovel it. Got to salt the driveway. 
and I have a crappy driveway. Crappy being the word today, uh, the word of the day apparently on the podcast. Wonder if that was ever the word of the day on Sesame Street. I watched a lot of Sesame Street as a little kid, like vintage, almost. I'm not quite old enough to have been there from the beginning, but it was darn close. Sesame Street started in 69, and I would have started watching it probably in the early 70s. So uh, I was there just about from the beginning. So I've seen a lot of vintage Sesame Street. I also own a couple of the, I'm off on a tangent now, so buckle up. I also own a couple of the DVD sets. They were putting out for a while. Uh, I think they put out like the first five years maybe of Sesame Street on DVD several years ago. And I got as gifts, I think the first two volumes which I think maybe were a year each. And I, I'm not proud of this. No, screw it. I am proud of it. I actually sat and watched them. And uh, you know, when my kids were little, I tried to get them into it too, but they never quite stuck with them. They liked the Muppets, although I think largely more because I like the Muppets. And when they're in the mood, they want to do things that I like. So uh, Sesame Street was never really a thing for them. Growing up, we were more, uh, they were more Disney Channel kids. But I was a Muppet kid and a Sesame Street kid, and I don't remember where I was going with this. Oh yeah, I don't remember crappy ever being the word of the day on Sesame Street. However, it is the word of the day here, because I had to shovel again this morning after the snowfall that wasn't supposed to happen yesterday. Um, which distressed me particularly because I went and saw... The Stan and Ollie movie yesterday. This is me segueing into what I actually wanted to open the show with. And it was troubling because there were a few snowflakes in the air when I was getting ready to go and my kids wanted to go with me. But it didn't look like a big deal. And the forecast wasn't really saying a whole lot. Tonight, this being Sunday, um, as I record, we're supposed to get a lot, potentially, a lot of snow and ice and crap. Uh, I should have a little ding every time I say crap. But yes, it didn't seem like a big deal. So we went, we saw the movie, we come out, and there's a crap ton of snow. Actually, it didn't snow all that much, but on top of the ice and snow we already have on the roads, it was not a pleasant drive home. Got home safe, though. Saw the aftermath of a couple accidents, but didn't have any ourselves. So that's good. The Stan and Ollie movie. As this episode opened, unless you skipped through it, you heard Trail of the Lonesome Pine which is a classic Laurel and Hardy tune. It debuted in the movie Way Out West from 1937, which is my favorite and many people's favorite feature-length movie that they did. The comedy team made a lot of short films, you know, 10, 15, 20-minute films, and they also made a lot of feature uh, films, basically meaning an hour plus. Way Out West was one of their best. Even Stan Laurel himself said that was probably the best one that they did. And it's a song that they sing, a duet that they sing in that movie. So I made you listen to it at the opening of this episode. It also, a bit of trivia here, in 1975, for reasons nobody knows, the song suddenly caught fire in Great Britain and hit number two on the charts for Great Britain. Why? I, I don't know. It was only beaten out in 75 by Bohemian Rhapsody. That's how popular it was for a time. And it's, it's a great song. It's a lovely song. Um, Laurel and Hardy, it's always fun to listen to them. Uh, Oliver Hardy, of course, was a very good singer. Stan Laurel, perhaps not as much. But the two of them together, it was just delightful. And the movie is phenomenal. It's a small film. It's not a great big adventure film. It's not a biopic, per se. 
It's a film about these two guys, about the guys themselves, not the characters that they played on screen. It gets a little confusing for people who don't really know Laurel and Hardy. Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy were real people. They played characters on screen, also named Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, who were obviously fictional versions of themselves. Uh, and this is a movie, like I said, it's not a biopic. It's about them at a particular point in their lives, specifically 1953. By this time, Oliver Hardy is 61 years old. Stan Laurel, I don't remember exactly how old he was, but he was uh, a comparable age. They're getting up there in years. They've been making movies together for like 30 years. And they've kind of, they're on the downslope of their careers. Their popularity is fading a bit. They haven't had made what's considered to be a good movie. They haven't made a movie in all, at all in several years. And the last five or so that they did with Fox Studios are sort of generally regarded as not so great for various reasons that I don't need to go into right now because you probably don't care. You know, and they're getting older and their health isn't as great as it used to be, particularly Oliver Hardy. And this is them on a tour to Great Britain playing uh, theaters and, and so forth to try and, and regenerate some of their popularity because they're hoping to get a production deal for a new movie. They want to make a movie uh, centered around Robin Hood um, to kind of revitalize their careers. And they need money, frankly, uh, to make the movie and, and themselves because they're kind of broke. They had terrible production deals. They made a ton of extremely popular movies that even at 53 were still popular, but, you know, this was a long time ago. They didn't have good contracts where they got royalties every time those movies played. They didn't get anything. So uh, they need money. So this is a small little film. Uh, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley play Oliver Hardy and Stan Laurel. They do a phenomenal job of capturing their look, not just their look, but their personas, how they talked, how they moved. It's just a, a nice little film. It with big thoughts, big ideas about what it means to uh, go through the ups and downs of a long-term friendship, what it means to be, you know, to be uh, beholden to your art, and what it means, sort of the ups and downs of your popularity with other people, and, and what your art goes through for that, you know, and a realistic look at you know what it means to to age, to get older. We all do it, and it's not always pretty. So it's just a really, really nice film. It's a probably different experience for someone who knows their films and knows a little bit about Laurel and Hardy already. But I think even people who don't know that much about them, there's a lot there for for the average movie goer. Um, the film does a really nice job of giving you enough information to care about these guys, even if you aren't already steeped in who they are. Um, my kids liked it. My kids are 13 and 9, and they had a really great... They wanted to come. I didn't make them go. I was just going to go myself, So, but they wanted to come, and they had a really good time. So all of you who are casual Laurel and Hardy fans, or maybe not particularly fans at all, if you like movies, it, in a way it's kind of a, a buddy picture, um, a, a sort of an on-the-road buddy picture in a sense. And like I said, all those other things, friendship, art, mortality, all of that stuff is covered in there. Uh, I cannot recommend it more highly. Um, I'm sorry on the bandwagon that I feel bad it didn't really get... Oscar attention, I kind of understand it. It didn't really get official release until the end of December, and that was in the UK. It didn't come here until January this year, being 2019, depending on how far in the future you're listening to this episode. Don't wait for it to come on DVD necessarily. One of the things I really liked was that this is the first time I've been watching Lauren Hardy movies since I was a little kid. My brother, my older brother, hi Jeff, was a, uh, a big, was and is 
uh, as is my brother Jerry. Hi, Jerry. Big Lauren Hardy fans. And occasionally, I can remember as a little, little kid, them watching the Lauren Hardy movies uh, occasionally, and then I, I would watch those. Um, my Jeff had, for a long time, you know, 8mm films, so you could watch it in a bit more traditional sense than just, uh, you know, like on a DVD or, or back in the day on, on a VHS tape. And then I grew up watching them. So even though, uh, this is the point I was trying to make, even though I've been watching them for decades, this was the first time I'd ever seen any sort of Laura and Hardy on a big screen in a movie theater. Because you do get clips of the actual Laurel and Hardy uh, doing their thing. And it was just fun to see that on a big screen. So all sorts of reasons to have fun here. Uh, the drive home, not so fun. But I am happy that I went. I do not apologize for taking up the first 10 minutes of the show to tell you about it because I loved it. It was great. It's very much on my mind right now. Go see this movie after you listen to the rest of this episode. All right. Where should we go from here? Oh, yeah. Let's do this. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship or else he'll go splat. He's mad, Mac Hughes. Mad Mac Hughes. It's time to check in with our buddy Mad Mike Hughes. He of the ostensible goal of building a rocket in his backyard to launch into the upper atmosphere and get photos of the Earth from high above to prove or disprove that the Earth is flat. Still nothing new about that. The last few months, mostly what we've heard are things like he's doing personal appearances or he's working with a company to make a Mad Mike Hughes bunny toy or he's selling posters or supposedly there's a movie. I think there's already some one movie out. I guess maybe there's another one. I'm not sure. Let's see. Last time we talked, he had signed... Oh, that's right. Last time we talked, he had signed a deal with WoW Presents Plus, which is a network, and we talked about this last week, which seems to be devoted to LGBT programming and has a number of podcasts by and for drag queens. And I was perplexed, what is Mad Mike doing there? But we talked about that last week. Nothing new that I can see on that. But I don't know if I mentioned the other article he posted in early January. Science is nothing but perception. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the thing about the top five strangest science stories. And he linked to this. We figured out because he was listed as one of the stories. So, okay, that's nothing new. So nothing else really going on with Mad Mike right now that I know of. But I will keep you posted. As always, if you have, if you have Mad Mike news, let me know. All right, let's close up the Mad Mike uh, mailbag. I keep calling, wanting to call it a mailbag, but it's not. Let's just get out of this segment. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat. He's mad, Mike Hughes. Mad, Mike Hughes. What else? I got some feedback on episode 157, Dodge'em, on the Patreon page from Michael Tyler. Michael wrote, uh, hi Michael, by the way. Michael wrote, I've always felt Dodge'em was one of the evilest games on the Atari 2600. You're controlling a car trying to be Pac-Man while avoiding it, uh, while avoiding head-on collisions with cars seeking your ultimate destruction. To which I responded simply, you're not wrong, and yet we come back for more. First of all, thanks for commenting, Michael. And that's kind of the thing with, with good games, right? They're frustrating, and 
they seem evil, but we keep coming back. That's a good game if we keep coming back. So thanks again, Michael. You guys, if you support me on Patreon, you can see my posts every week when a new episode comes up, and you can help out, you know, help keep the lights on in the uh, in the podcast studio. The Atari Bytes BYTES Patreon page is there for the taking. Go check it out. All right, thanks. My Google alerts blew up this week with stories about how scientists have named a prehistoric shark after the Galaga game. One of the articles was on Polygon on January 21st, 2019, headline, Newly Discovered Prehistoric Shark, Named After Arcade Classic Galaga. How the Internet's Favorite T-Rex Contributed to the Discovery of a New Species, by Charlie Hall. The article talks about how Chicago's Field Museum, uh, anyone in Chicago, if you've been there, let me know if you've seen this thing. Uh, they have Sue, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, an opinionated apex predator dungeon master, and a big fan of Red Dead Redemption 2. Sue isn't the only item in the field's collection with ties to video games. The field announced Monday that it is also home to a newly discovered species of prehistoric shark called Galagodon. Oh boy, Nortistestae. I totally butchered that. The creature was so named because its tiny teeth resemble the spaceships from the arcade classic Galaga. And as it turns out, the beastie has very close ties to Sue themselves. Themselves. Themselves? Themselves. Whatever. So apparently this huge Sue the Tyrannosaurus Rex came with a bunch of dirt uh, in, in this limestone deposit that it was found in. And the dirt just kind of sat there for a while. Uh, and they used you know 30,000 hours with a miniature jackhammer and a tiny sandblaster loaded with baking soda to dig all this, these remains out. But the limestone itself... Uh, also referred to as Matrix, didn't get thrown away. So it kind of sat there, this, this limestone sat there for a while, waiting for someone to come along and dig out the tiny little fossils, and they eventually got a volunteer, Karen Nordquist, a retired chemist, uh, to come in and do all that. And she came across this one millimeter across tooth, roughly the size of a head of a pin, and then a team at North Carolina State University sort of charted the thing. And as I say... Apparently, it looks like the spaceship in the arcade classic Galaga. They do not have, and I'm perplexed because they, oh, there it is. I'll be damned, it does. They have a picture of a ship from Galaga and a picture of this tooth. And yeah, it does. So that's scientifically cool and nerdy at the same time. So that's awesome. If you're at the Chicago Field Museum and you see this thing, let me know. All right, that's about it for news. Let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is Pressure Cooker from Activision, 1983. This might be my new favorite manual, by the way. You can always rely on Activision for good manuals, or at least fun to look at manuals. And generally the games are pretty good, but we'll get to that in a minute. The front of the manual is not the typical, here's a screenshot of the game, here's the name of the game even. That, that even isn't on there. Instead, we get a picture of Short Order Sam with a spatula in his chef's hat and whatnot. And it just says in big letters, Short Order Sam's Famous Fast Food Cookbook. And then we get to the instructions for the game. Cooking Basics. Business is booming at the drill. Hamburger's orders are just pouring in, but back in the assembly room, the food dispenser is pouring out condiments everywhere. Help short order Sam fill each order with the proper combination of tomatoes, onions, lettuce, and cheese. And don't forget the bun. Then rush the completed orders to the wrapping room fast. All right, cooks, grab your spatulas. We're using the joystick for this one. There are eight different games. One, three, five, and seven are one player. Two, four, six, eight are two players taking turns. Although nothing in the manual that I saw actually explains what the difference between the games is. And I didn't spend enough time, frankly, playing the games 
to uh, figure that out. Joystick controls. Move Sam up, down, left, and right. You move the joystick in that direction. Press and hold the red button down to reject unwanted condiments. Press the red button to drop completed hamburgers into the wrapping chute. On the screen, you're shown at the top the o- open flame oven. The per- performance rating is to the left of that. Short order Sam is wandering around the middle of the screen. Uh, the hamburger is on the conveyor belt. The right side of the screen above the oven has your score. The uh, conveyor belt is sort of self-evident. The food dispenser is to the right. And the electronic order board showing you what you need to put on what burger is at the bottom. And that's in the assembly room. You start the game by pressing the reset switch. Duh. You begin with 50 performance points. You can add or lose performance points depending on your efficiency as a cook. You get 10 points each time your score increases 10,000 points. The maximum performance rating is 99 points. You lose one point each time condiment is wasted. Smashing against shorter to Sam or the conveyor belt, you place the same type of condiment on only on any hamburger more than once. You lose five performance points each time you drop a hamburger into the wrong wrapping chute. You miss the wrapping chute when you drop the hamburger. And you lose ten points each time a hamburger falls off the end of the conveyor belt. Every time you catch a condiment, you get five points. You score ten points for placing any type of condiment on any hamburger for the first time. Hundred points are awarded each time you drop a completed hamburger into the correct wrapping chute. Efficiency bonus points and burger bonus points reward you and boost your score at the end of each wave. The game ends when your performance rating drops to zero, which happened to me a lot. In the wrapping room, there are three chutes, color-coded, green, red, and blue. The wrapped and sacked hamburger is at the bottom. The wrapping and sacking machine is at the top. That's where you drop the burger. The automated food service... Silver Kitchen occupies two rooms in the back of the grill. Hamburgers are cooked and orders are filled in the assembly room. Completed hamburgers are wrapped and sacked in the wrapping room. As I said, in the assembly room there's an open flame oven and conveyor belt, a food dispenser, and electronic order board. The wrapping room has the racking and sacking machine. All this on the screen is not quite as confusing as it sounds in the manual, but what is uh, sort of addicting to the game is getting used to the rhythm of the game. Flying condiments must collide with Sam's rather rotund stomach, head-on, left or right sides, to be caught. When they hit him anywhere else, splat. When you don't want a condiment, press the red button and the condiment will bounce off Sam's stomach. None of the orders ever require any condiments more than once. So, you know, no extra cheese for you, mister. Condiments are placed one at a time on the burgers. Touch the burger with the ingredient to place the ingredient on it. When every ingredient needed has been placed on a burger, the color barred on the electronic order board corresponding to that order flashes. To complete the order, run Sa- rush Sam to the bottom of the assembly room and enter the wrapping room. Drop the hamburger into the wrapping chute that is the same color as the flashing bar on the electronic order board. Join Activision's short order squad. Oh boy, here we go. Another patch that I never got. Alright, what's this one? Filling orders can really run you ragged, especially at the grill. But if you score 45,000 points or more, then we think the cook deserves a round of applause. Stand up and become a bona fide member of the Activision short order squad. Just sandwich a snapshot of your savory score in an envelope along with your name and address and send it to us. We'll be delighted to send you the short order squad emblem shown below. Be sure to write the name pressure cooker in your score on the bottom of the envelope. Hey, we get a little history here. The name hamburger comes from hamburger steak, which was a marinated meat dish served in 1801 in England. The first hamburger was served in America in 1900 in New Haven, Connecticut, where Louis Lassen served the first burger between two slices of toast at his lunch wagon. In 1804, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis, the first hamburger was served on a bun. The first cheeseburger, supposedly, was served in America, specifically Los Angeles, in 1929. An English doctor named J.H. Salisbury, 
prescribed the Salisbury steak to his patients as medicine. I have a hard time imagining a doctor prescribing a burger today, but if there is a doctor that'll do that, I want to go see that one doctor. Were hamburgers ever inflated in an attempt to raise the Titanic? The answer is no. Tips from Gary Kitchen, designer of pressure cooker. Gary Kitchen is a senior designer at Activision. In addition to pressure cooker, Gary designed the best-selling hit, Keystone Capers. Gary is a dynamic, is a dynamite ping-ponger, and of course loves to eat hamburgers. Gary says, quote, First of all, keep moving. The open flame oven never stops cooking, so you never have time to just stand around. Run to the conveyor belt and place the condiment on the hamburger. After dropping a hamburger into a wrapping chute, hurry back to the assembly room. Don't waste time watching the order fall into the sack. Also, it is important to remember that the food dispenser only throws out one condiment at a time. So if there is one in particular that you need, then move closer to the dispenser and reject the ones that you don't need. It'll really speed things up and you'll get the condiment that you do need sooner. Lastly, there will be times when you catch a condiment that you don't want. When that happens, place it on the hamburger at the top of the conveyor belt and hope the next order will need it. But most importantly, try not to catch any useless condiments. When it's closing time at the grill and all the customers have gone home, drop me a line. I'd love to know how your shift went. I'm going to go find him and email him now. You think he'd like that? And that is how you play Pressure Cooker. According to Wikipedia, after Pressure Cooker, Cooker came out on the Activi- from Activision in 83 for the Atari 2600, it was not ported to any other systems. Atari Protos opens its review by asking the question, Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a short-order cook? Well, if you're like 99% of America and answered no, you'll still probably like this game. They call it a little-known Activision late release. I'm not sure it's really little known, although maybe it was when this review was written. I'm not sure. The game featured mind-blowing graphics and awesome gameplay, but the games came out so late, uh, this and other games like it, came out so late in the 2600 lifespan that most people never saw them. So maybe the review just means it was little known at the time, but of course has become well-known since then. If there was ever a sleeper hit on the 2600, Pressure Cooker is it. With its uh, mixture of action, pressure, and addicting gameplay, Pressure Cooker seems to have it all. One word of warning, though. The opening tune will stick with you and drive you insane. You'll find yourself walking down the hallway humming a happy little tune, only to discover it's the theme from Pressure Cooker. Thankfully, most of America won't recognize it and realize what a nut you are. Gamingwithswag.com wrote, I love a good birder, just ask my wife and my doctor. I feel like birders can go either way. It's either cooked amazingly well or it's a hockey puck. Back in the early 1980s, the video game industry was no exception to this analogy. However, if there was one company you could always count on for a great game, it was Activision. Excellent titles like Pitfall, River Raid, Dragster, Fishing Derby, and more stood out from the crowd, providing a beautiful and addicting gameplay experience. Then he writes about how his first experience with the game was in the late 80s. I was hooked with the brightly colored graphics and catchy background tune that was unusual for many Atari games of the time. The controls are slick and the game is very easy for anyone to pick up and play, but hard to master. Pressure Cooker can be found, according to this article, in multiple Activision collections, including PlayStation 2, Game, Bo- uh, game Boy Advance, PC, Android, iOS, and more. The game is perfect for, for a quick test uh, in reflexes and memorization, and is in my top five Atari games of all time. The Atari Times pretty much echoed all of that other stuff, adding, It's quite an enjoyable game if you like cooking or like little Italian men with a mustache. This game has a bunch of replay value, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, except the Sword Quest Blade or Jaguar or a secret prototype Atari game or, well, you get the idea. I'm kind of hung up on this, uh, do you like little Italian men with a mustache thing, but I'm not judging. Any of you listening happen to be a little Italian man with a mustache? Tell me if you, uh, you know, if you think this this game is uh, as good as you. I'd be curious to know. And finally, my favorite article I read in my super, in my incredibly superficial research 
on this game was this one from Kotaku.com. In 2013, they posted an article called The Activision Action Figures the Atari Age Deserved. We should have gotten action figure tie-ins for all, every game Activision released on the Atari 2600, but we didn't because marketers were stupid back then. Dan from Chicago Toy Collector makes up for that oversight with this killer custom G.I. Joe's. Can you guess which figure goes with which game? He's got a picture of five different ones here. One of them is the is Roderick Hero from Hero, H-E-R-O. Here is really G.I. Joe's tripwire with Breaker's backpack modeled, modded into a tiny helicopter. Clever. Then they've got, got a Frostbite action figure, Frostbite Bailey, five parts general flag, arms, legs, and torso, and one part quite coincidentally Frostbite. Funny how that happens. The other three, which you can see over at Chicago Toy Collector. All right. I'm going to confess here, I don't know a whole lot about G.I. Joe action figures. I had a few when I was a kid, but I was never a huge G.I. Joe guy. So he linked then to a November 19, 2000 article on deathbytoys.com that opens with, Today I turned 33, so as a birthday present to myself, I'm going to get around to posting three customs I made. Using old G.I. Joes, I made a bunch of characters from some of my favorite Atari games. I specifically chose Activision games, but due to their particularly, particularly memorable characters, a recognizable box aesthetic, I used each character's color scheme from the game, as opposed to the colors from the box art, taking only minor liberties with boots, gloves, belts, etc. He's got Short Order Sam, which looks more like... He's got, like, a white outfit with, like, a beret kind of thing. Body, legs, and arms came from a Cobra Commander, the face from Rakondo, and the hat from Joseph Colton Mailaway. None of that means anything to me. He explains that Cobra Commander's body happened to look just like a chef's outfit. I bought a completely sun-damaged one on eBay for cheap. For the head, I used the hat off Rakondo, then sliced the beret off the Mailaway copy, or the Mailaway Joseph Colton. He's got also got Officer Kelly from Keystone Capers, Pitfall Harry from Pitfall, obviously, Roderick Hero from Hero, and Frostbite Bailey from Frostbite. I don't think he was selling these. I think he was just making them for himself. But if you, any of you has a custom video game action figure from this era, from the Atari Activision era, or if you've made one yourself, send us a picture and tell us why you did that. I would be curious to know. All right. Well, after the break, we squeeze some tomatoes, whip out our buns, and get greasy together. Alright, order up. We're playing Pressure Cooker 
Can you actually grill a cheeseburger, cook a cheeseburger, in a pressure cooker? I suppose you could, but instead we're turning on the flame on our open grill, which seems not safe at all, indoors, but who asked me? So, here goes. Alright, order up. I just, boom, y'all, that's how you complete your first burger. Don't drop it. It's in the bag. Don't need a tomato. I don't need that cheese. I don't need that lettuce. Alright, I already screwed up that burger. Ow. Oops. No, I didn't mean to reject that onion. No, I didn't mean to do that either. Man, I have trouble rejecting ingredients. I gotta talk to my psychologist about that. Man. So then I end up making the wrong burgers. Ooh, I am losing lots of points. I am out already. Alright, let's try this again. Short order. Oh, sorry. Let's listen to John T. music. Short order Sam looks a lot like... I don't want a bun yet. Oh, wait. I wanted that. I don't want that. Wait, there's no stuff on this bun. Darn it. Alright. Now we're getting somewhere. That birder's done. Got my onion. Shoot, which one? Okay, this one. Boom, y'all. In the bag. Alright. Oh, no. No. Alright. Bun me. Alright, let's go. Wow, this guy ordered a lot of birders. Three of them so far. Oh, I dropped the birder. Dang it. Anyway, what I started to say is... I dropped it again. Man! Short Order Sam looks a lot like Peter Pepper from Birder Time. I don't know if that was intentional or not. Boom! In the bag! Alright, that one's done. A little tomato. Bun me. In the red bag. All right. Yeah. How come nobody orders french fries? Burgers and fries, they go together. That one just wanted onions. In the red bag. Boom. Have a nice day, sir. Nobody's ordering cheese. What's the deal? In the blue bag. Little mater on that burger. This game looks really good. In the bag. Which is good because I only got eight performance points left. 
Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I rejected the lettuce. Never reject the lettuce, kids. Roughage is good for you. Makes you poop. And if you reject it, your game becomes poop. That's right, I wrapped it back around. I'm a podcaster, everybody. But I'm a terrible short order cook. Alright, back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's X-E-G-S, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. So here's the thing about Pressure Cooker. I like this game a lot. The look is simple, the concept is simple, but the gameplay is not. And that's the best kind of Atari game. You don't have to figure out a whole lot of stuff going in. You just got to get there in there and do it. The screen, the graphics are awesome. You know exactly what everything is. There's multiple things to do, but again, it's not confusing. It's a sequence of things. You pick up the ingredients, you put it on the burger, you walk to the wrapping room. You dump it in the bag. You go back and repeat. I, it's great. I could sit here for another hour and play the game. Um, and that's what you want, right, from an Atari game. Activision is usually pretty reliable. People have said it over and over again, and they're not wrong because they are. So go get Pressure Cooker. Most of you probably have it, if, especially the other podcasters listening to the show. But if you're a casual Atari person and you're wondering what games should I get, put Pressure Cooker on that list. No question. All right, well, I could go get a cheeseburger now, or I could do something just as tasty. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. Hold on, fans, I just realized I didn't give the story a title. I'll be right back. This commercial is based on a true story. Hello? Tracy, no, we don't need a babysitter tonight. Thanks, anyway. After a family bought an Atari video game, they had no trouble getting babysitters. Oh, my God. Hello? Kate? No, we don't need a babysitter tonight. Bye. Everybody enjoys Atari because Atari has so many different games to enjoy. Hello? Karen? No, we don't need a babysitter tonight. No other company offers you as many different video game cartridges as Atari. Alright, let's call it the future made to order. December 26th is a day for reflection at the North Pole. Nick sleeps in, enjoys a hearty, sugary breakfast, then convenes a meeting of his senior elf staff to do a post-mortem on the Christmas gift distribution. Sam's final post-mortem started like any other. Sam had been an elf at the Pole for centuries. He became head of wrapping and distribution around the time America became a country. Under his tenure, present wrapping became more efficient. Not every package needs a bow. Save scraps left from wrapping large boxes to wrap smaller ones. Don't go nuts with the tape. Instead, place the tape strategically. Distribution of Santa's bag was quicker, so he got the presents down the chimneys faster. Sam was so good, he'd been considering asking for a raise. An extra gingerbread man an hour. 
didn't seem like too much to ask. And so Sam was perplexed when Santa asked to meet with him after the meeting. He thought this year was pretty flawless. A couple of kids in Holland were confused when they got the Make America Great Again hats meant for kids in Tennessee who instead got wooden shoes. And there was that family at the Parsonage in Alberta whose gifts were wrapped in pornographic gift wrap, but that was a system hack by the bitter, outgoing tooth fairy, and not Sam's fault. Have a seat, Sam, Nick said, his jovial tune muted. His, eyes, his eye twinkle was dimmer, too. Sam flopped down in a marshmallow-shaped chair. I've got some ideas for after the post-Christmas break. If we start now, I think we can overhaul the whole world distribution system by next Christmas. I'm thinking alphabetical. Sounds good. Santa said, the twinkle dimming a bit more. But, and we have the new data on the most pleasing wrapping paper colors, Sam started to say, feeling a little nervous. But Santa raised his hand. Sam, wait. I have to tell you something, Nick said. North Pole Industries. Well, the legendary figures are withholding a large percentage of our funding. The not-so-jolly elf paused to gather himself. Ho, 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 boy, this is hard. But you see, Sam, cutbacks have to be made. The rest of the conversation was a blur of mutual reassurances and bland hot chocolate. Sam cleaned out his locker and Charlie Brown walked from Santa's workshop, pockets full of severance candy canes and broken heart empty. Whatever would he do now? That was seven years ago. I said hold the cheese, the man with the tiny face and huge glasses said. His chin quivered a bit from nerves or really misplaced rage. Oh, Sam said, slump-shouldered. Sorry. He clearly was not so much sorry as annoyed to have to do this over again. Sam slumped back to the assembly room. Birder after birder rolled by. The food dispenser fired in rapid succession and endless combinations. Cheese, lettuce, tomato, onion, lettuce, tomato, cheese, and onion, lettuce, and onion, cheese, and tomato. There was no end to it. Sam looked around. Where the hell were the other workers? There weren't any. That's where they were. It was all machines. Just the machines and him. The machines worked because that's what they do. Sam worked because minimum wage was, well, minimal. But it was a wage. When he was at the pole, a few candy canes per week got you a pretty nice apartment overlooking Yuletide Lane. But in the real world, you needed a little cash to put a roof over your head. Never mind someone to do the prancing and pawing up on that roof. He chuckled a little bit at that thought, looking around for someone to chuckle with. There was no one, of course. Just the whir of the food dispenser depositing unused tomatoes on the floor at his feet, like so many Christmas ornaments waiting to be put into service, lifting holiday spirits. Sam missed the elves. He missed running the wrapping division at the pole. Now he was just a grunt, taking orders from a faceless assistant manager. The assistant manager did have a name, probably. Tommy. Or maybe Tony. Wait, no, it was Marie. And it wasn't even about being in charge or not being in charge anymore. He missed being with the elves, working together toward a common purpose of making people happy. Now he assembled and packaged burgers for whiny kids and dude bros and harried parents, all of whom would forget his efforts before they crapped out the fruits of his labor. An errant bun beamed Sam in the head, snapping him out of his funk. He was worth more than the prevailing wage. He had more to offer than greasy gray globs of saturated fat. Sam tossed his chef's coat into a pile of lettuce, then quickly retrieved it. He paid for that. The assistant manager had asked him to wear, uh the grill t-shirt. Sam refused because the franchise mascot was supposed to be a zebra. Don't know why, but it really just looked like Vixen in his Halloween costume, and thinking of the reindeer made Sam sad. The assistant manager, 
Now Sam thought maybe the manager's name was Brenda. Protested for a few days, but the birders were coming out hotter than ever, so the customer's fries were still warm when the birders came out. And now Sam could wear whatever he wanted. Well, mostly. He missed the curled shoes with the happy little bells that he wore at the pole. The hats. The... Oh, hell, he missed his old life completely. So he was going to take it back. Sam stomped toward the restaurant back door. He was just about out when the assistant manager, let's say Ronaldo, burst in from the wrapping room. Sam, he said, we need you. A bus is coming. Huge order. Burgers are backlogged. We need you in the wrapping room. Sam hung his head. This was his chance. He could go right now. Sam, Sven said. Hurry, no one can wrap these like you. Sam opened the door in the alley, then slammed it shut. He was still inside. Sam was a professional first. A quitter, never. His employer needed him. Oliver, Sam said to the assistant manager, I'll need 50 yards of the waxed wrapping for the single birders, 40 birder boxes for the doubles. Stat. Not since the invention of origami had so much paper flown in such intricate patterns. No fast food customer knew their double mushroom and Swiss needed to be wrapped in waxed paper shaped like the Eiffel Tower. But once the burgers arrived on those plastic trays, the customers couldn't live without these works of art. Once they got ahead of the orders a bit, the assistant manager sent Sam out to the counter to take payment from the bus driver for the huge order. Fine, Sam said, dying a little bit more inside. Real world money seemed so... not fun. At the pole, they traded in candy canes and cookies. Here, they just used bits of paper or metal, or they used some sort of magic plastic cards. But Sam was a team player, so to the register he went. Eyes downcast because the area behind the counter tended to be disturbingly sticky, and he didn't want to fall. He stepped to the cash register and said, Welcome to the drill. We hope you're having a grr-eat day. Ho, ho, holy sh... The big man on the other side of the counter said in complete surprise. Sam's eyes shot up and met the twinkly orbs and rosy cheeks of St. Nick himself. A partridge-sized lump formed in Sam's throat, and he barely croaked out, Hello, Nick. Sam, my dear boy, Santa said, I'm so glad to have found you here. Because you've come to hire me back? Sam blurted out. Santa chortled. Oh, my Sam, he said. No, no, the elves and I are just hungry. I know I can rely on you to get my onion rings extra crispy. Oh, Sam said. Well, we aim to please. The assistant manager shoveled bags full of food forward. That's my boy, Santa said. Did you remember the tartar sauce for the fish fillets? Of course, Sam said, plastic smile rivaling the Barbie doll knockoffs they cranked out at the pole. In truth, the grill hadn't given out tartar sauce for years. Revenge might be unhealthy, but little revenges never hurt anyone. Good luck, Sam, Nick said. You too, Santa, Sam said, mustering all the fake enthusiasm he could. Santa left, never knowing Sam also put holes in all the drink straws. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incomptech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks also to Mike Mann for his Mad Mike Hughes update theme. And thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, including Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play Music, pretty much anywhere they can stick a podcast, you will probably find this one. If there's somewhere you don't see it, and it's a place that you would like to listen to this podcast, let me know, and there's probably nothing I can do about it, but if there is, I will try. But make sure wherever you go to listen that you serve up a steaming pile of review of this show 
on Apple Podcasts so that other listeners can enjoy the tasty goodness in their ears that is this show. And don't forget, now you can call the show. Please finish your bite so that you're not chewing on the phone. That's impolite. Um, And leave us a voicemail about any damn thing you want at uh, 563-265-1978. You can also support the show financially at the Atari Bytes Patreon page or by picking up Atari Bytes merchandise at our still-existing, but frankly not updated recently, Zazzle.com store. But there is still some cool stuff in there, and I am open to suggestions for other things you would like to see, because sometime this year, I will be revamping the merchandise store. So send me your thoughts. Links to all of that, of course, are in the show notes. The website is ataribytes.libson.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the Atari Bytes Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And check out my occasional weirdness, and who knows, there might be a hamburger picture on there at some point too, on Instagram. Also, while you're checking things out, It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown is another show that I do. comes out on the 15th of every month. Anything you ever wanted to know or everything you enjoy about Peanuts is there from month to month. The TV specials, the comic strips, the movies, the merchandise, the mind of Charles Schultz himself. If it has anything to do with Snoopy and Charlie Brown and all the rest, we will at some point talk about it on that show. And while you're doing all these things, listening to these podcasts and writing these emails and leaving these reviews, feel free to eat a hamburger. It's good for you. If you put lettuce and tomato on it, it's like eating a salad. Honest. Editor's note. The podcast host you are listening to is not a nutritionist. Next time on Atari Bites, it is not Dodgem, as my notes here say. We are actually playing Entombed. So that should be fun. Um, I know nothing about the game. But we'll find out together next week. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.